vacation and I don't feel sick and, you know, my body is older but working and I don't know. The checklist is telling me that I don't give a fuck what you think. (laughs) (laughs) And I love you for, you know, being more ambitious for me than I'm turning out for you, but I'm very successful to me and I'm very proud of myself and I'm not done. You're listening to Face Your Fierce. I'm Meg Murphy. I'm Ellen E. Lee. In this podcast, we bring you stories of trailblazing women who are living their lives outside the lines. Linda Cash is an actress, comedian, writer, director, teacher, mom, and friend. From Second City to Hollywood, she's worked with the best, but still she manages to live a life of grounded authenticity. And we wanted to know, how does she do it? I feel like the gift that I've been given in my life is that... um, I always had a sense that things were going to be fine. I have friends who sort of have this sense that life is super hard and why me? And, you know, there's there's this glass half empty kind of feel. And I've always felt sort of hardwired for glass half full. And I, I don't even think it's anything that I'm doing. I think I was born with that. I've definitely been down in my life. I've definitely, um, you know, felt super lost in my life, like I didn't know the answers, but I've never once in my life felt like I wouldn't get out of it. So I really am grateful for that because the more people I meet and the longer I live, the more I realize that's special. That's a thing that not everybody has. And I believe that my mother had it. I believe that it was given to me genetically because she just had this perpetual optimism and this lovely quality about her that made whatever she was doing interesting at the time that she was doing it. And I think that's part of it is that she lived in the present. Linda's mom was a um, famous, she's on the Canadian Walk of Fame. She was a famous singer an opera singer. So you traveled a lot with her. Do you ever feel guilty though, that you have that naturally hardwired because a lot of people don't. And if there are people around you and you kind of go, you can't really relate when people are down the same way. Well, I feel like I can sort of live it, but I'm, but, but I don't feel like I can teach it. And I, I feel like the only way people are going to sort of get anything off of me is, is through example rather than telling people how to live and I think the longer I live and the more connected I am with my children and the more bizarre navigating I have to do through very difficult waters I realize that um, I'm going to react the way I react to things and people are going to observe it and model or not off of and, and I make tons of mistakes but you know when as a mother of three kids and having lost my husband suddenly in a car accident four years ago like that's a great test of okay you're in the friggin' captain's seat and how are you going to navigate these children through this really rough time and of course I instantly put my captain's hat on and grabbed hold of the steering wheel and told them all how to live <laughs> and all how to grieve and all how to do it and it's it's it it doesn't work It doesn't work. I need to allow my children to um, grow as they're going to grow. My responsibility is to adore them, which I do, and that's easy, and to listen and maybe talk less when they're trying to express themselves, particularly at their age. 
and um, just to live in a way that I feel is correct for me. And I know the only, I know it rubs off on them. And I only know that because they roll their eyes when, you know, I'm saying anything because I'm embarrassing and horrifying. But, (laughs) but when I hear my kids quote me to other kids, you know what I mean? With some kind of advice or something that is a little gem, I know that it's, it's, splashed on them a little bit that makes me feel really proud it's never going to come directly <laughs> it's, they're just never going to acknowledge where they got it until maybe they're my age I don't yeah. know but that makes me feel very rewarded but I feel like the less I actively pursue changing anyone on this planet and just just live the way I think I need to because I, I think the other thing about me which I think I feel is a gift, but I have a really strong inner voice. I have a lot of chatter in my brain, but I do have one voice that is is the most resonant, and I I, I can listen to that voice. Um, I don't get clouded by a bunch of voices, and I know lots of people that have a bunch. That voice you're saying that you have, that inner voice, and it's always sort of been there, and although you're, there's chatter around it. What does it sound like? What does she say to you? I'm assuming it's a her. Maybe it's not. And what has happened or went? Give me an example of a time when you didn't listen to it and what happened. Um, that's an excellent question. I don't think it's a voice. What I think it is is an intuition that just makes you say the right words or do the right thing. I think it allows for um, what feels impulsive but isn't impulsive. It's just a direction that is the right direction. It's sort of like an arrow that points to a road when there's a bunch of roads to choose from. I've never felt it was a voice, although I felt that around this arrow there's chatter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only me chattering at myself and trying to talk myself out of stuff. My instincts have always been excellent. I just, when I was younger, did not did not listen to the alarm system because I have a very acute alarm system when things are probably not safe or this is not a good vibe with this person perhaps I should not trust this person in business or in a personal relationship often because I like people so much and because I honestly believe in people I had a tendency to make one night stands turn into like two years (laughs) I just I just made stuff last longer than it really should have. <laughs> but beca- and I think that that's, I, I, I don't mean to defend it. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's so much not listening to my alarm system as hoping for the best in people and assuming that that thing that attracted me to begin with is just the tip of something magnificent, which I think it actually always was. It just, with all these people, I wasn't the person to bring it out. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't. Because I don't like the idea that people are who they are and they can't change. I don't believe that's true. But I do think that when you start to search and search and search the same person the same, and the same blocks come up and the same alarms go off, that's when I'm not so good at listening because I want it to work. I want it to last longer. I'm very romantic about that stuff. If I have a tragic flaw, it's that, intimate relationships uh, on a romantic level have a shelf life for me. They just do. Mm-hmm. I think because I love to live so authentically that when it is no longer authentic, 
and I recognize that it's not authentic anymore, I got to go. I got to go or that person has to go or we have to hurt each other to make it fall apart. I am never going to be that woman that just nods and compromises and smiles and goes, we'll just make this thing work because it doesn't. It doesn't work for me. So in a way, I'm an awesome superficial friend because I make intimate relationships happen with cab drivers. Like I, I love everybody in a very real way. I'm not a small talker, as you can tell. <laughs> I'll never stop at the weather. I want to know you intimately and I want you to know me. But when it comes to going home with you and having a life with you, I have no idea how to do that. And I am in awe of people that do that for 30 years plus in awe do you want that or are you afraid of that or are you actually just okay never wanting that I don't know I don't know I think that there is a story we tell ourselves that we want that I think that um I think I don't know at the moment I'm on my own with my children and my work and my health and I don't want that at all right now because I don't trust, I don't trust that that's going to, like, I feel so solid right now. I, I went through a very tough time when I lost my husband and I feel like I'm on the other side of an extremely tough time with my kids and myself and everything. And I'm finally on this like interesting solid ground and I'm fascinated by just representing myself. I'm, I'm fascinated by what I like for dessert what what I want to wear, what movie I like. You know, I, I haven't really listened to those things. It's very difficult for me to listen to those things within a relationship because I'm so crazy for people that I just want to defer to what they want for dessert all the time. And as a mother, you do that too. So as my kids get older, it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to watch what I want. I'm going to read longer than I normally would. I'm going to give myself that time. I, I'm finding it an intimate relationship with myself, really, that is really Ooh. interesting and really intimate and and really enough. Yeah. What, what would you call that? Is it, you know, low self-worth, low I don't deserve to come first? I don't, like, I have no idea. What? No, what, I think no. it's in love with people. Mm. I am genuinely in love with people. I really feel they're interesting. You know, I always saw myself, because I'm an actor, right? Um, I always think, like, there's people in the world that you write about, and there's people in the world that interpret the interesting people that you write about. And I never really, I always looked at myself as an interpreter of other people, not me being the interesting thing. That's not a low self-esteem thing. I'm just an interpreter of storytelling, and I like taking stories or writing stories that aren't my own and interpreting them, right? But in the last few years, I've been pushed into a position where I'm the interesting subject. I have the weird, wonky storyline that people want to know about, and I find that really like it's a new position for me because I'm used to going, no, no, you're interesting. I'm going to play <laughs> you because you're the, I want to know about you. I don't really want to talk about myself because I, I don't know what I have to say. You know, I, and it isn't really self-esteem. It's more like I, I never saw myself as the subject. So now I'm the subject. So now I have to look in the Petri dish at the subject and what it is that, and also as you get to a certain age and because I teach as well, 
people do what you're doing. They're asking me, what's your perspective? What? And thank God, you know, at this age, anyone's interested at all, because often I think women at my age, because I'm 55, start to feel invisible and less asked those questions. But I really do feel like I'm sitting in a position right now where can I can actually interpret and talk about what my experience is with some experience. So it's an interesting position. It's new for me. Yeah. Yeah. And we often talk on the podcast about, you know, the universe calling and you pick up the phone and that course corrects your life forever. What was that phone call for you in 2012? In May of 2012, Linda's husband, actor and comedian Paulo Sullivan, was killed in a car accident at the age of 48. After he died, Linda was left to pick up the pieces alongside her three daughters, Meg, Dylan, and Tilly. The thing about going through a disaster, like a man dying overnight, who you adore, and you have sort of a what you think is a model home life, and you think you're on a trajectory that is rather predictable, and suddenly nothing is predictable, and it's like the surface of the earth is made out of jelly for a long time because it's not that day it was years of jelliness it was years of unsureness it was years of lots and lots of reaching out to people like I don't know who the fuck I am I don't know where I'm going I had to see a counselor and I basically said I'm mom and I'm dad and I have no idea how to parent anymore because I'm falling apart and they're falling apart and we're falling apart so you know I guess the the revelation was, Linda, you cannot do this by yourself. So I don't have parents. They're not around anymore. My siblings are wonderful but busy. My friends are wonderful but, you know, pretty busy. So I had to seek lots of help. And I am a firm believer in mentors. I am a firm believer in climbing that mountain to the wise person on the hill and getting that information. I'm not a firm believer of staying there, but I am a firm believer of making the journey to people that, and again, fate or God or something pushed me in very interesting directions. I got tons of great advice from people in Peterborough, Ontario. This is not an exotic place. This is an hour and a half from Toronto and half the people from here won't go to Toronto because the parking's too scary. Like this is Hicksville in in a way. (laughs) There are wise and beautiful people in this place, which tells me that they're everywhere really. But I somehow was pushed to meet them all. And they helped me uh, beyond what I can express. So it wasn't a, a hero's journey that I worked it out. I got people pulling me out with, you know, both their hands and they took my feet and they took every part of me. Chiropractors cracking my back and my neck, you know, acupuncturists poking me with needles, grief counselors, you know, having me work through this crazy pain. I've been through a lot. And I think anyone who has been through this kind of a lot, and I think there's a lot of us, (laughs) just if you can come out of it and see the worst of it behind you, You just gain this courage. You just gain this courage because it's like a death and it's like a rebirth. I am, it's not like I'm Teflon, but I'm a shitload braver than I used to be. 
as an actor, you have been through, you've been brave, people would say, for a long time. You haven't been afraid of things. Or you are afraid, but you push through it anyway. And you've been, you've had quite a bit of success as an actress, and people know who you are. Um, <laughs> how is that rejection? Tell, tell me the story about uh, your big flop audition for Frasier and how has that reje- rejection made you a stronger woman because it's a hard industry and you were a younger woman going through that in LA it's a bad and ugly place but how have you used all of that to stay true in yourself even in the place where everything was being taken away from you and you were steered in every direction that wasn't true to you tell me about that story and how you overcame that well I lived in LA for a good you know, seven years during the Clinton years. Very exciting time to be there. We had floods. We had riots. We had, you know, fires. We had Rodney King. It was a very tumultuous time in Los Angeles. You got off the plane in L.A. from Toronto, and you just smelled the opportunity. It was like, oh, my God, this is intoxicating. Anything can happen here. So I was very wide-eyed and ready, you know, to to go, go, go. I couldn't get an agent to save my life because I had a lot of experience in Canada, but who the hell was I? So I lied my head off to get my agents. I told this uh, small, wonderful agency um, uh, that everyone wanted me. I made a list of all the people that rejected me and said, I really have to, you know, Susan Smith is, is, I'm not sure if I want to go with her and artists, the, you know, the, I don't know, William Morris. That's so big for me. I was talking to them about, I was lying to them about how they wanted me and they were so big, but I'd rather be in this little boutique agency. Meanwhile, no one freaking wanted me. And so by the time I got to the (laughs) elevator, anyway, they took me on. So, and, and again, that was my little voice, my little arrow making me lie like that because I don't usually lie, but it just worked. So I got an opportunity. I got a few opportunities, but the biggie was, you know, they were looking, there was Kelsey Grammer had a new show and it was called Frasier and he was exec producer and it was Jim Burroughs, I believe. Um, So really heavy hitters, great dialogue, just fantastic. Myself, Lisa Kudrow, and this other gal, uh, Lori Galpin, who actually got it, were the three last people to be seen. Wow. Kelsey Grammer was in the room. And I'm on my way going, I can do this. I can do this. This is fine. And I see Mike Myers in Paramount Studios, you know, jumping on it. I, I had gone to Second City with Mike Myers. So he and I were friends. I used to set him up with girls. Um, and and But it was just like it jarred me. It was like it it – I realized as I stuttered through my conversation with him that I was actually quite nervous and um, that jolted me. And then I went in, the casting person was so excited about the whole process that he was mouthing my lines as I was speaking, which also made me feel like I was stoned. And I don't even know what the audition was, but I was the first one to be seen. I believe I was first choice. I left and went right to my agency because they usually tell you right away. And I knew it didn't go swimmingly well, but the feedback was she was terrible. Like she was, she stunk up the place. Like it was so bad because I had just, I choked. I, I shorted out without even acknowledging my own nerves, right? And I left the agency and proceeded to almost hit a woman with my GMC tracker because I was leaving the parking lot and I almost hit this elderly lady. So I, and I was so upset and 
I didn't knock her down or anything, but I, I got out of the car and I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? It's just been a really hard day. So sorry. I almost hit you. That was awful. She didn't say a word to me. I went, you're okay, right? And she just looked at me and went, I know you're okay, but I really have to go because I'm having a really bad day. Anyway, so I drove off. She sued me for $25,000. She said I knocked her down. She said there was a myriad of, uh, you know, uh, surgeries that she needed. Meanwhile, this woman just was like, she saw me coming. She just knew. She was in cahoots with the guy in the parking lot uh, who I later gave shit to. It was, it was a quite a terrible day. Regardless. It's fantastic to fail miserably like that in retrospect. I was never really meant to stay in Hollywood. I could have, like, I was there for seven years, and incrementally it was just getting better and better, and I knew eventually I would get to where I wanted to be. But I felt like in the world of sitcoms, it's like, my God, this is going to take me a freaking decade. Like, it's just going to take too long, and I was bored with the genre, and I just just was bored. I was bored with the trajectory I was on. I will never bomb like that again, ever. I will never let anything get to me like that day got to me. I mean, that's, you have to fall flat on your face to know what that feels like so that you can get up and go, okay, I know what that was. Like, that's me feeling like it's too big for me. But how did you get up? Why? Why did I, how could I go back and, because I was mad at myself because I knew that I choked and it was like, and, and my auditions after that were sterling. I was prepared. I was not scared. Nothing was going to be as big as that kind of gold ring. Mm. It was never going to feel as big. And I, you know, I worked with Ron Howard and Barry Levinson. I, I worked with a lot of bit heavy hitters after that. Nobody scared me like that did ever again. I, would, I just wasn't going to allow it because it was stupid to be that nervous. Yes, it was Kelsey Grammer. Yes, they were heavy hitters. But, you know, they're poo smells. and I sucked so I didn't really deserve the job anyway so I wasn't meant to get it but I wasn't going to let them tell me that I was a terrible actor there's no way how then did you in in an industry where like your success is sort of determined on your fame or your paycheck or who you know or how many tabloids you make how have you then redefined that success for yourself did you feel like when you first came back from LA like this was totally your choice or did you feel like you had to explain to people that you were a a failure or what did you feel like and how have you defined success for yourself since then also a great question you know I I had a very famous mom who, because she was in the world of opera, and in the world of opera, she was she was internationally known. She sung at La Scala and Carnegie Hall, and my mother was very well known. So I had the advantage of being in the dressing room when people would come backstage, and I had the advantage of being in the audience when people leapt to their feet and, you know, crying, standing ovations. There were she had fans that used to design their vacations around wherever she was singing. So I had this wonderful vantage point. My dad was 20 years older than her. He played violin and he was a conductor and he did not reach anywhere near the success that my mother did. And I also got the advantage of watching him play his instrument four hours a day, never letting it leave its side, loving music like more than anything on the planet, knowing 
everything there was to know about Mozart, including birthmarks. Like, he knew everything. He gobbled his art, but he never received the kind of recognition that my mother did, right? So I had this great seesaw, and it frustrated my father. It was awful. It was a little castrating for him because she went beyond where he was necessary to her, and they didn't last together. Um, And then I wanted to sort of go in something similar to her, and I certainly wanted to achieve uh, the kind of success that I knew that I I could because I saw that it was possible. But I also saw my mother lose her mind. And I also saw my mother's fans disappear. And I also saw my mother's money disappear. And I also saw my mother go into, a, you know, uh, be afraid to be alone, become an alcoholic, have sycophantic friends who used her. And I saw my dad redefine himself at the age of 64 and spend the next 20 years of his life Uh, teaching seven-year-old Korean kids how to play violin and feeding him, feeding his soul and being, you know, the the patriarch of the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. So I saw these two storylines, and I also saw that when my mother, you know, even five years after she died, people forgot who she was. So the legacy of who my mother was, it's not... It's not who you were. It's not the name that you build. That's not success. So I had the opportunity a number of times in L.A. to make it really big, and it didn't happen. I don't know, guys. I don't know what success is. What success is to me is, is whatever your storyline is, right? I want to be known. I don't care how big the audience is. I will always be a performer. I will always be an artist. I will always be a goofball who is willing to fall on her face. Um, I don't care how big it is. I care that I'm true to myself. I care that I make it count because no one will remember my name. That's not the important part. My kids will you know, remember my name and people will remember that I, I was a good person or not. But beyond that, it's a fucking star on a sidewalk. Like who the hell? I don't want to work for that. I don't want gum on me. I don't care about that. I care that, that people really know me and, and feel that when they exchanged with me, it was meaningful. And that sounds corny and it sounds suspicious because I think people sort of go, what the hell are you doing in Peterborough, Ontario? Well, I'm living my life and I am equally challenged. I am so challenged with the work that I'm doing. It's fascinating and I'm changing it up all the time and I'm stimulated. And the second I'm not, I'm going to change it again because I, I, that little voice knows when things aren't right now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Face Your Fierce, sponsored by Inner Edder Wealth and Meg Murphy Productions. Our music is provided by Poddington Bear. If you've enjoyed these stories, please subscribe and share the wealth. We've got more about Linda on our website, so click the links in the show notes of this podcast. Linda's life is never boring. So while we were chatting, her phone kept going off. Yes. I actually think there's something I auditioned for like yesterday with a fucking Boston accent, which I hardly could do. And I, I might have gotten in it starting on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and we go.